pick up with a little bit of the material that uh, Paul Tripp has at the end of chapter 8 and lost in the middle, the chapter he is entitled, May I Speak to the Manager, Please? And I, wanted, I want us to think together about the sovereignty of God and bring out one particular thing that I think often gets forgotten. And because it gets forgotten, we end up in a position where we have sort of, well, not sort of, where we have an unspoken struggle. Um, you know, we, I mean, who's going to argue with God, right? Well, sometimes we try. But we know God is God, and we're not, and we say, okay, yeah, God's in control of all things. God's in this. God ordained this. God decreed this. God brought this into my life or your life. But here's the concern that I have, and it's something that I'm thankful that Paul addresses in the book, is that uh, many of us conceive of that doctrine of God's sovereignty or his works of providence. There's some sort of more technical name for this. God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. You try to put these words in front of me. That many of us conceive of that doctrine in a very cold, detached, impersonal kind of way. And when you do that, that's a terrible thing. Some really terrible things can start to happen if you view God's ordering of your own life as though he's sitting in this huge empty room moving pieces on a chessboard. Or if he's uh, just sort of pushing particular buttons and levers and control of things and you think, okay, God's, or when you think of God's sovereignty, you think, okay, God's, I know God's going to do something that's really going to mess up my life. I know, uh, I'm afraid, maybe you would even say it out loud, that God's going to move me somewhere I don't want to go. God's going to bring a trial in my life that I don't want or don't welcome and there's not a thing I can do to stop been there? Look at yeah. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. Here's the big thing. The Bible never teaches the sovereignty of God as a distant and impersonal thing. Never teaches the sovereignty of God as a distant and impersonal thing. And I want us to look at something that uh, the Apostle Paul says about it, it's in Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> and if you're, you want to turn there in your Bible, great. Uh, it's a little bit of a long, somewhat longer passage. Paul and Silas are, have been to Thessalonica and Berea. Paul goes on to Athens. Silas and Timothy uh, are, uh, are staying back in Berea. And so they're coming on later, and we read at verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, 
he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is, pause for a moment. This is sort of like Paul being invited onto a talk show, I guess is maybe the most, the best modern equivalent that I could come up with. You know, some show that where they want to interview people who have interesting ideas. They used to do that on TV. I'm not sure where they do that, uh, if they do that so much anymore, because reality TV is so much more interesting than that. Um, but here's what Paul says. So he's standing in the midst of people who like to think about ideas, who have heard bits and pieces, secondhand versions of what Paul's been talking about, about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. And quick pause. So they have this, this monument, probably what we would call it. They find this altar, this monument that says to the unknown God. The uh, Greeks and Romans, do they worship many gods or one God? Many, okay. And so they, you know, and, and they're kind of covering their bases here, you know, sort of say, Hey, just in case there's some God out there that we, we hadn't heard about, we don't know about, we want to have our bases covered. We don't want that God or that goddess to be mad at us. So just for the sake of making sure everybody's included, we're going to say, yeah, to the unknown God. And Paul very cleverly uh, takes that as sort of his, his hook in to say, yeah, yeah, let me tell you about this unknown God. I've got an unknown God to tell you about. He says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Stop there. Cut it off there. Even though he says more, he's about to, the next paragraph, he's about to get to uh, what God's doing about the problem of sin, unrighteousness, and that he's raised, uh, he's raised someone from the dead by whom he's going to judge the world. He's really getting to the, really getting to the good stuff, but I don't want us to pass over this point that he's just made here from uh, particularly verses 26 through 28 uh, in talking about the unknown God. See, there are two things that we're always encountering when we're dealing with God. Here are the, uh, 
hear the technical terms. One is transgender, and the other is homosexual. You know what we mean when we talk about God being transcendent, the transcendence of God? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's all that is about God that is so vast and awesome and majestic and other than what we are and what we experience in this world. That God is so much bigger than everything. Here's, you know, here's an example uh, from the Old Testament. Solomon's praying at the dedication of the temple in, uh, is it First Chronicles? And, or maybe it's, no, it's Second Chronicles. Anyway, one of the Chronicles, Second Kings. He is praying and he says, God, you fill, or the, he says, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much, you know, how much less this temple that I built. You know, they built a house for the Lord, the place where it, God had promised, I will dwell. I'm going to live among my people here in this temple. And Solomon has this wonderful moment of theological insight where he realizes, God's way too big to fit in this building. What Solomon's doing is, ta- is acknowledging the transcendence of God. The, uh, I'm going to so much bigger than who's out there. Now, eminence is is the other pole of this. That eminence means that God's God's very near. You know, we teach our kids and we're teaching our children's catechism. Where's God? And they say, Where is he? Right? And so, but it's always funny that what I've noticed with preachers But that is the con- see the concept. They don't have the labels, but the concept is, yeah, God, God's here. You know, you go, um, you know, go two, three time zones away. God's there. Go to Greenland. God's there. Go to South Africa. God's there. Right? Paul, uh, David asked in Psalm one thirty one, "Where do I? Where can I go to get away from your spirit? I can't. I can't escape. You're there. You're really what he's saying." about God. And both these things are true. And they're true at the same time. It's not that sometimes, you know, it's uh, it's like it's it's not though as though when you're praying, God, I really need your help, and you get this message back, you know, this sort of recorded message back. I'm sorry, today is one of God's bareness days. Uh, he's on a transcendent day today. And he's he's too big to uh, to care about you in here. Of course that doesn't happen. 
And Paul is declaring here to these people whose, whose theological framework is way out there in a lot of ways. He's saying, you know, the God who made everything and doesn't live in temples made by man, who's so big and so great, who's not lacking anything that, um, that we need. Hey, how about this? No extra charge. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a really top shelf restaurant quality theological sermon that you're not going to get anywhere. No other Sunday school class I guarantee is going to get this one. So you know, maybe you should get this word. This is a word you never use anywhere else. The word is piety. And what it means is, that's the best way to put this, that God doesn't need anything. He's perfectly full, satisfied. God's not, not in heaven going, if only, if only I had this. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you know, yeah, you've got your altars, and you've got your sacrifices, but don't think you're doing God any favors. God's not in your debt. God's not waiting for you to uh, scratch some itch that he has. That's part of his transcendence, his bareness. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. In fact, he's the source. He's given everything to everybody all the time, and he's not running low so that his tank stays full. He's not uh, about to run out. And then he says in verse 26, getting to the sovereignty, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth. And here's the, the sovereignty, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So it was by God's plan, by his decree, his purpose, that you would be born in the epoch in which you were born in, in the year, the day, the place, the family where you were born. Don't you remember God's determined we'd all be here together today? That our paths would intertwine today. And God's control over every detail of your life like that is something Paul says is actually something we've been talking about how big God is. But very quickly, Paul switches to the fact that this, this is a reality that speaks to the here-ness, the imminence of God, the nearness of God. It doesn't make him distant. It makes him near. It doesn't make him unknowable and unreachable and unconcerned quite yet. Did you catch what he says at verse 27? He, he did all this determining allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place so that they should, what? Seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he says, he's actually not far from each one of us. He's close. He's here. So Paul is declaring a purpose in the sovereignty of God that we ought to make note of. And notice the thing, what is it that verse 27 says that uh, God's intending that we should seek? We should seek him. 
that's something we ought to maybe see is that we should see, you know, the purpose is that we should seek God. That we should seek, I'll put it, I'll put it in terms of need, that we need God more than we need his blessing on our purposes and our plans. We need God more than we need our success. We need God more than we need our prosperity. This is a part of this wonderful mystery of why we pray. Um, my theology professor at seminary, whom I love, he just turned 80 a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Douglas Kelly, wrote a book in the late 80s uh, about prayer called If God Already Knows, Why Pray? And he's dealing with, he's dealing, he's working on this whole the tension right here that, you know, God already knows what's going on in your life. God already knows what you need, but yet we're, we're commanded to pray. There's a, a, an imminence, a, a nearness there. So we're not informing God of something that he doesn't know, but it's part of, of this very thing here is that God is drawing us into fellowship with him, to know him to seek him, to find him, to feel our way toward him if necessary. And so, don't let the sovereignty of God over your life make you think that God is distant, unreachable, and unconcerned, but rather the, the exact opposite, that God is near, that he is drawing you near, that he is caring for you in the midst of it. Here's, uh, here's what Tripp says in the next to last page of this chapter. You and I will never completely understand what God is doing. We will often be confused by what we are experiencing and ask ourselves how it can be good. Knowing that God is sovereignly near will not make you understand your life. But it is vitally important precisely because you won't understand it. Rest will never be found in having your own way or in figuring it all out. Rest will only be found as you are willing to believe that there is someone who is controlling the details of your life, not only for his glory, but also for your good. Maybe you are in one of those episodes in your life where you're tempted to scream, May I talk to the manager, please? Perhaps you wonder why God doesn't give you more physical strength or why it would have been so bad to give you just a little bit of your dreams. Maybe you struggle with the fact that you made so many mistakes and you wonder why God didn't teach you earlier. Whatever the nature of your midlife struggle, you must realize that it is a struggle for control. Receive the comfort of God's sovereign nearness. It's the only place where rest can be found. Earlier in the chapter, Trip, you, you notice he likes to make number lists of things over here. Didn't you, Trip? Almost to a point of exhaustion. Sometimes as a reader, I find these points of, and now here are nine points about this. But, okay, that's how his brain works. I can live with that. But he lists 11, uh, I guess you would call them warning signs or uh, about this struggle with 
God's sovereignty in our lives. And he says, of course, he says, don't obsess over one of them. But he says, if, if you find kind of this cluster of these things in your life, you should be alert to this. This is a, this, there should be some uh, lights going off on your dashboard of life where he talks about things like this. And I'll just give the list. I'm not going to talk about each one of them for time's sake. Uh, but cynicism, withholding worship and service in God's kingdom, anger, craving control. Uh, this is my term, not his. Uh, theological reversals, you know, things that you've held to for a long, long time and then just kind of, for some reason, all of a sudden you're thinking is that this isn't true anymore. That, that could be a warning sign. Impatience, forsaking godly habits, questioning God's love, questioning God's wisdom, uh, a weakening witness in your life, or just to use uh, an old-timey word that is still as relevant as ever, worldliness. You're seeing, and when you see a cluster of some of these things, in your life, be alert. You are struggling with the sovereignty of God. And say, don't kick against this, but instead receive this, this sovereign control and this sovereign nearness that God has brought into your, uh, this, uh, whatever the situation is that God's brought into your life, pray to him about it. Draw near to him. Don't hide from him. Don't run from him, but draw near to him. God wants you to reach out to him and find him. That's, that's the kind of time we're to live in. That'll be our stopping point for, uh, for today. So if you came in late, we won't be on Paul's trip next Sunday. I'm going to share some uh, one Christian to another thoughts about the war conflict going on in Israel and Gaza next week. So, uh, so pray for me. Pray for me in preparation for that. And uh, let's, let's all pray together. God, uh, I pray that your word would stop us in our tracks here, even for just a few moments. We think about uh, maybe some of the, the evidences of, of, of doubt and disbelief and kicking and struggling and resisting, being uh, hard-headed and stiff-necked. Uh, I pray that we would, we would be softened, that we would be corrected, that we would uh, receive it as a mercy and a grace that, uh, that, you, would, that you would point out that we've been, uh, we've been fighting and struggling like a, uh, like, like, a, like a, a baby or a toddler that doesn't want to be still and doesn't want to go to sleep. Um, though sleep is the thing, rest is the thing that we need the most. We thank you, O oh God, that you are indeed near. You are near to each one of us. You're moving here in this building, in this place today, as uh, Andy preaches, as each Sunday school teacher teaches the oldest and the youngest one here. Uh, we're amazed at that nearness, but also amazed at your transcendence, that that's not just happening right here, but it's happening across the street. It's happening all over the world today. 
There are people praying to you right now, even as we are, and somehow it's not just a, a, a cacophony in your ears, but it's uh, that it is though we were the only people in the world and the only ones crying out to you. How amazing it is, God, that you are are so vast and yet so uh, loving and deeply concerned about each of us. We pray that we would not let go of this, but rather uh, continue to, to follow Jesus and reach out to you and, uh, and trust you. Show us even in these moments where, where we need to do that most, the next step that we need to take in, uh, in living a life of faithful uh, discipleship and following Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.